This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Thank you. Welcome all. Um, we, we started this talk. Uh, it's rarely met with in 100,000 million kalpas. And I, I think this practice is to make it uh, possible so that it's more frequently met. <laughs> so I'll see if I can embark on that a little today. I'm going to start with uh, from the true Dharma I, uh, which includes 300 koans, one uh, number 74 where it says, Zhao Zhou rotates the canon. The main case is that Zhao Zhou was once given a donation by an elderly woman. She requested that he rotate the great canon. And of course, the great canon, uh, canon usually means the scriptures. And there are 108 billion characters in the oceanic storehouse. So she asks him to rotate the great cannon. Zhao Zhou got down from his seat on the meditation platform, circumambulated the platform once, and said to the woman's messenger, I have finished rotating the great cannon. The messenger told the woman about this, and she said, I asked him to rotate the entire cannon. How come the master rotates only half the canon? So if you understand how it is that Zhao Zhou rotates the canon in the first place, you will see why the old woman complains that he only rotated half of it. Is it Zhao Zhou or the old woman who is at fault? You should understand that although Zhao Zhou circumambulated the meditation platform in response to the woman's request to rotate the canon, Rotation of the canon is not limited to this. Rotation of the canon should not be seen as being confined to any particular activity or thing. Reading, rotating, chanting, copying, giving, receiving, and possessing the canon cover heaven and earth with their virtue. This is the practice and enlightenment of all Buddhas on the three times. So, in the Heart Sutra we read today, we chanted today, this, this uh, sutra uh, that was uh, this is a translation by Joan Halifax and Kaz Tanahashi, where they substitute emptiness for boundlessness, that boundlessness is the nature of all things. It's not limited by form or feelings, perceptions, impulses, and discernment. It is free of eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, and so on.
So what is this practice? Um, it is to experience, not just to understand, but to experience the non-duality of existence. It's not an experience in the usual sense. Because it is who we fundamentally are, uh, because non-dual consciousness is the experiencer, which each of us is, it is not experienced as an object separate from ourselves, and yet it is experienced and yet it experiences itself. In Buddhist teaching, it is said to be self-knowing. So we would not be able to know about this uh, wisdom mind that's talked about if it could not be experienced. Anything that is beyond experience is only a matter of speculation. In, the, in calling non-dual consciousness as non-speculation, it can be directly experienced, and it can experience itself. The Heart Sutra, which we chanted, usually is interpreted philosophically um, using the term emptiness, uh, which means impermanence or no, no self-existence. The Heart Sutra says that all forms are empty in this way, but there is another more mystical meaning, experiential way that this phrase can be understood. The most sacred spiritual texts, these, uh, the canon, um, the sutras, are basically writings about experience, human experience. There's a, a Tibetan Buddhist uh, tradition, the Shantong tradition, which is similar to Zen, which approaches realizing non-duality. To realize non-duality is to settle one's attention in an all-inclusive fashion on the present moment. So in Zazen, we have a all-inclusive sense about our existence and our interconnectedness, where the whole is undivided. But this practice um, has some limitations because when we have this view that we're wide open it's actually a view. And so uh, how do we um, 
get beyond just this fixation or this fixed stance of openness. Um, I'm drawing from some commentary from uh, a Buddhist practitioner named Judith Blackstone, who's a psychologist. And um, she has some insights into this non-dual experience. So I'm going to read a little bit of what she says. We cannot arrive at the all-pervasive transparency of non-dual consciousness unless the transparency pervades our own body. For this reason, we do not awaken to non-duality if we just let it go from the surface of ourselves into the world around us. We need to let go from deep within the body, from all the way through the body to truly awaken. And for most people, this takes work. Although non-dual realization itself is entirely effortless, entirely without any sort of contrivance, we need to do the focused practice of subtle inward attunement in order to let go from deep within ourselves but then we are able to really let go, to continually reinstate either our conceptual understanding or our wide open focus is not necessary. This means that non-duality is not something that we only experience when we remember to focus or conceive of life in a particular way. We realize non-dual transparency throughout our old body we uncover the ongoing, effortless, non-dual reality. Another reason that embodiment is necessary for non-dual awakening, that this embodiment within our body is necessary for non-dual awakening, is that the fixations that obscure non-dual reality are not just conceptual, are fixed grasp on ourselves and the world is not just mental, but also somatic. There are rigid holding patterns throughout the whole body, limiting our capacity for cognition, emotional responsiveness, and physical sensation. So as we grow, from a baby into a child and adult, we, each of us have created these constrictions in childhood and beyond, which are responses to painful or overwhelming events in our, in our environment. Sometimes these constrictions uh, are Trauma and is one way for these constrictions to occur in us or, or affect us. And, and pretty soon, uh, they're deeply ingrained. 
There also, um, it isn't just trauma that can control, can cause these constrictions. It can also be caused by uh, just overstimulation and other uh, events in our life, more normal events, and and especially people who are sensitive types um, uh, end up being constricted. Now, uh, there was a, a woman who did a study, and out of her sample pool, which I'm not sure are people that were coming to visit her or were engaged in therapy, but the study she did, she found that 15 to 20% of the people uh, considered themselves sensitive types. Now, in, in here, I would imagine it's probably a lot higher. Uh, we're uh, not a, a normal pool of, uh, of our species uh, cross-section. We're quite a rarefied uh, section because here we are. You know, we're people that meditate and are reflective. So I would imagine that it's a much higher, higher percentage. Judith Blackstone uses this example, a fearful cringe held in our body along with the memory of danger will keep promoting a sense that the world is dangerous no matter how much we try to open our mind or divorce ourselves from our childhood story. Because we are our non-dual consciousness, we need to open our whole body and being to this foundation of ourselves. So these uh, constrictions in our, in our body, I think we all notice them uh, when um, a loud sound happens, we, we con contract. When um, a certain person appears that triggers us, we contract. Um, oftentimes, uh, we engage in habitual behaviors, which are like deep grooves in our conscious being, maybe even somatically in our body. These are, are um, grooves of, of patterned sensations that keep repeating and keep us going in the same way again and again through this repeating patterns that we encounter. And so um, these constrictions that uh, are natural part of our interacting with existence are, are things that need to be addressed. And um, normally in our Zen practice, the when um, at least in the past, uh, one of the previous priest residents we had here, Greg, Greg Campbell, he studied with Sasaki Roshi in LA um, 40 years ago. And he needed therapy, but uh, he, uh, Greg said, but he'd go to Sasaki Roshi for Dokusan and the response would be, sit more, just sit more. Well, these deep grooves, these constrictions we have in this body, it's not just in the mind, they're actually in our body. Our auto 
nomic system, a neural system, uh, houses a lot of patterns that typically are repeated. And uh, so how do we meet those? How do we uh, get to a place where these constrictions have an opportunity to, we can see them, we can let them open up, and to then be able to experience not just the mental f sense of enlightenment, but the full body experience of non-dual, this non-dual experience. Judith uh, Blackstone says, to experience our internal wholeness, to experience the wholeness of our, this being that we are dissolves, when we experience that wholeness, it dissolves the conceptually based boundary between self and other, along with the defensive strategizing self. We become transparent, disentangled, and spontaneous. But we are still here, still present, even more present than before. The sense of truly existing is an integral and surprising aspect of uncovering your spiritual essence. The sense of truly existing So how do we experience truly existing? Each one of us is a being, you know, with this consciousness that's part, you know, our body is part of this consciousness as well as our brains. So how do we fully experience this? The person who handles these reflections is who we actually are. We are not the, vacu the vacuity of space. We are the one who is always there beyond the changing content of experience. And we can know this person. We can know that we are this true person by realizing the non-dual ground of our being. The internal coherence that is revealed as we inhabit our body, the internal coherence, there's a coherence in our being. So the internal coherence that is revealed as we inhabit our body has qualities that can be experienced as the qualities of our being. Our intelligence, for example, is not just a function, but it has a qualitative feel. Does that have some truth to people that our intelligence has a feel? That, you know, when I, I think back to, uh, to, to school and, and uh, having worked through a problem and having the intelligence to actually solve a problem and get to the end and combining the aspects of uh, 
the problem to come to a solution. You know, there's a feel of this, um, how in, our intelligence in motion feels. There's, and it's, that's an important thing to recognize and to have enough of a perspective, uh, a space to feel our intelligence. Ms. Blackstone goes on, our love, our power, our sexuality have qualities that we can experience as part of the actual experience of being alive. As we realize non-duality, we shift from a conceptual stance to the actual experience of ourselves and our environment. We shift from a constructed reality to reality itself. A Zen story has a monk showering a or showing a flower to his student and saying, most people see this flower as if it, in a dream. In non-duality, we awaken from the dream of life to the experience of life, the full experience of life. The all-pervasive spaciousness of non-dual consciousness can be experienced as both sheer transparency and as the quality-rich ground of being. Within our own body, our basic nature can be experienced as both transparency, as if we were made of empty space, and as quality-rich presence. One of the techniques she uses uh, to experience the our being is to um, she starts with um, feeling our feet and occupying the space of our feet. And usually we think about feeling our feet, but we don't, you know, to think about the space of our feet that we have, the the volume of our feet, the position of our feet. We, we don't usually fully fill the, the volume of our feet with our awareness. And to take that experiencing the volume of your feet and then move it up the body into other parts of the body, we eventually occupy the space. We we're consciously occupy the whole space of our being. In that space of occupying our beingness. There's also a transparency to it and a groundedness to it. And it is from that place that we then can take it out and see how it doesn't uh, it, it extends out into the rest of the world and the universe. 
So this non-dual experience starts with the feeling of our body and our body occupying this space. And from that base, we can also feel the complete interconnectedness with all things. Does this make some sense? So to experience the non-dual nature of existence requires, well, maybe it doesn't require, but it, it really is helpful if we fully occupy this body and the space of our body. Because then as we move, wherever we move, whatever, whatever we do, we are... Um, we, our, our mind is occupying this body space. And to start with that position as we move and interact with other people and other things, it's, uh, I, think, I think it's not possible to not have it go to the ends evolve everywhere, but it starts at our core. It has to start at our core. And normally in our, you know, Zen for a lot of people is an intellectual exercise. It needs to be, it's also, but it's basically our Zazen practice is a somatic exercise. It's a, uh, it's a physical posture we take and physical mindful practice we take of watching our breath but to, to take that breath and have it permeate our entire body so we feel the space and spaciousness of our body or limit even the boundary of our body, then we can feel what's next to our body and what's next to our body and what's in all these things. And it just, it's quite naturally uh, in harmony with our internal structure and how it is. So to, uh, to deal with these constrictions and deep grooves we have of a habitual um, habitual practice, habitual existence, uh, it, it's hard to see them. It's hard for me to see them. I'm still encountering habitual behavior um, that affects other people. And, and so to, um, anyway, I'm, um, I would like to be able to see how this body actually is affecting others in, in, in real time instead of like 
ending up up here with conceptual and, uh, uh, notions that um, are actually constrictions. So uh, in, in summary, uh, I don't mind. Um, it, would this be similar to what you're saying? Um, um, I read an author, Shannon Markman's her name, titled Falling Into Freedom. And so the freedom is in the falling, falling out of our small self, our categorizing self, our, and that the freedom is in the actual feeling in the falling out of that false self. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's basically what she describes. But uh, I'm just wondering if, if our, our falling, talking about our failures, our disappointments, our shortcomings, all those things that disappoint us, mm -hmm. that that's coming out of our small self. Mm -hmm. Falling out is painful, it's suffering. Mm -hmm. But the freedom is in the falling out of the small self. Mm -hmm. With this, does this rhyme with what you're saying? It does. It does. Yeah. Um, um, the small self has all these constrictions of uh, that uh, have to be met somehow, and it's painful to go through them. And it sounds like falling out of the small self is a painful. It's hard to do. It takes work. And she probably has ways of, uh, or the, the author ha that you're reading is, has ways of how to do that, too. Is that right? She describes her, her life uh, from, from the good life of her family into moving to the inner city and taking, adopting and taking care of troubled kids in the inner city. And all of the stuff that she had to, that what she didn't let go of never taken from her all her assumptions, her privileges, her strengths, her certitudes. They were, she didn't let them go. They were taken from her. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of what I think she's meant by, that was where she was brought into freedom, hmm. was when she fell out, she failed out of where she was. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. poor summary, but. And it sounds like she changed their circumstances, her uh, location, her shelter, her, and and then there were, she couldn't hold on to any of that anymore, and it changed her to this new environment that was foreign to. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Yes, Kathy. I have to confess that when I come out to Jacoji, um, eat the food here. It's a very visceral body sensation, and it's very precious. It's very—it's just so tasty. It's wonderful. And, and so um, then I go into the library and I borrow some of the books about um, Walt Dobin's instructions. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it's it's like a whole cosmos of where the mindfulness of the person doing the cooking prepares is both in the preparation of the feeling in the body and the preparation and also the people who partake of the food it's in their body and um, it's it's a an experience a full body experience Thank you for that. Yes, Mike? I was thinking what you said about falling. Falling, on, falling into freedom. Falling into freedom. Failing into freedom. So I think failing into freedom. She liked a good life, but it wasn't good enough. Yeah. And she just had to keep letting go of what she didn't want to. I've heard the Buddha's um, awakening described as a kind of failure. Mm. In, in the sense that he was, um, like Doug was mentioning, the non-dual nature, releasing yourself from the non-dual nature of existence. The Buddha had these ideas about um, identity and about uh, get, getting something. And uh, particularly, he was trying to find a, a self. And so he was investigating um, finding trying to find a self. And it said, it's a kind of strange way to put it, but he said that he, in his failure to find a self, to, he found, he found, you could say he found no self. In his failure to find a self, he found no self. And that was his, that was the spark, that was the realization that um, his awakening. So uh, it's, it's interesting to, to describe enlightenment as a kind of failure to find a self. Mm -hmm. Kind of the same thing you said. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we have the opportunity to investigate ourself, and that's what we do a lot on, when, we're, we're, when we're meditating. Uh, how our body feels, what comes up on our mind, what's going on in our life, and also um, what roles we have and how those roles and in our interactions with other people are, how they, um, and all of those are small self relationship things, which are important things to look at. They're important to, um, it's important for us to understand our relationships. And uh, this, taking time, this wasting time, just sitting allows for our mind to uh, investigate. But then as we investigate further, it's like, well, who am I? You know, I think those questions still arise again and again. Of, what am I about? What am I doing? And, uh, <clears throat> and so to um, put ourselves in either uh, circumstances where we fail, um, where we are um, the normal structure of our of our life that's predictable and regular and secure, um, 
when those are set aside, we encounter a much deeper life experience. And I think backpacking is one of those. We don't know where we're going to be tonight or how the camp's going to be or is the weather going to cooperate. And will I get there? Will I break a leg? Will a, a bear attack me or a mountain lion? Or um, uh, I hurt. Do I really belong here? You know, you struggle with all this stuff. And then finally, you make camp. You set up camp. And it's like, wow, I'm in the most amazing place I've ever been. And th there's no better place than right here. Wow, this existence, you know. And, and we get to appreciate the deep sense, but it We've um, given up our, just in that um, effort, we've given up some of our normal security to our second tier security of our minus 30 sleeping bag and, and thermal tent and boots and whatever else we got and maybe even a fishing line. So, in a way, we come and camp on our cushion to um, try and explore the depths of our, our being. And, and I have to say that most of my zazen experience is up here. It's not quite so somatic. So, so to have some deeper notion of this full body experience that we have to have, that it actually has to start with um, occupying the volume of our being. And when you occupy the volume of your being, then it's less likely anyone's going to push you around because you're fully occupying the volume of your feet and legs and body, and somebody comes to, to do that to you, and it's like, oh, huh, hi. Instead of like, you're already off and they're coming at you and, and suddenly you're reacting to an attack or uh, uh, an unknown and there's, there are these, these reactions, but by this full body that when, you, when it's occupied, is transparent, the, and then it can mix with the transparency of the rest of the world. So I was going to um, read a, a brief section from this uh, Zhao Zhou's Rotates the Canon. So the commentary ends with this, this uh, paragraph where Zhao Zhou was asked to turn the, rotate the great canon, a uh, request from a woman, an old woman who gave a donation to the temple. But the commentary says, the black characters written on white paper that we call the great canon are also written in the sky and sea, on mountains and rivers, in the wind and clouds, as well as within one's self. And yet in spite of it all, in spite of its all-pervading nature, it is rare to encounter the canon directly. 
Only the Buddha mind can rotate the canon. Only the Buddha eye can read the canon. It says it is rare to encounter the canon directly. And our, our, our practice, what we do here is to help, help that be realized. Then there's let's see if this this is a this sonnet is worth uh, uh, adding here. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them? To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, is a consummation devoutly to be wished. That sounds like enlightenment. The heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, ah, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long a life. So thank you. I think we have five more minutes or so. If anybody else wants to make comment. Question. I don't mean to keep doing it, Kurt. Yeah, good luck. I just came from a Zen retreat, and I've been asked, uh, how was the retreat? And I don't know how to say that. I don't know how to answer that. How was the retreat? But listening to you, I'm just dawning. Maybe my, the answer I could answer, give is, well, it gave me time for myself. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, that's an important Uh, giving time for myself. And in a lot of traditions, that is um, what's called out, right? Tom, do you have a question? No, I would just be questioning. Okay. I I appreciate your emphasis on the theme of Uh non-duality. To me, that's the most difficult concept. Uh, both here and also in uh, Christianity, I think, with God's indwelling, it's the, this unity of all reality. It's a beautiful, powerful concept that I think is uh, most difficult for me on duality. So I enjoyed your, your words this morning. Just reflecting on that. 
Tori? There was so much to think about and take in in that talk. I, I deeply appreciated it. And um, just one, one thing that kind of struck me, I don't have any conclusions about it, but just some, I guess, parallel observations. Um, about uh, somatic blockages, I thought that's that's a really mm -hmm. deep and important idea, and mm -hmm. important to our practice, and also probably in the therapeutic practices. Mm -hmm. And um, something that I, I never really understood before, but that the body holds the experiences of the, of the person in ways that the mind is not aware of, mm -hmm. and that traumas can be located in. in systems and places in the body mm -hmm. and so there's there's that there's this kind of interaction of non-conscious but somehow minded systems in the body mm -hmm. and then there's also um, another thing that I think neuroscientists are more and more coming to understand and it's, I guess it's related to uh, research into the formation of habits that so much of what actually occurs in our lives and in our mind is the product of mental processes that are not within the layer of consciousness that takes up you know, the chattery space that we, that we seek to meditate our way through. But there are um, deep and I guess quasi-somatic patterns in the mind um, that steer what we think of as independent decision-making into these channels. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a, there's a third observation, which is just you know the, a lot of the recent science of um, the microbiome shows us that there are actually um, neural connections between things in our body that we thought was just like the machinery and stuff in our body that we thought was just, you know, that was the, the, com the command center. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that, um, that, you know, for example, like when you say, when you say that uh, the experience of eating a Chikoji is a wonderful thing, there are many, many layers to that. But one of them is that our little vegetarian microbiome says, oh, that I'm, I'm these kinds of creatures, and those are the kinds of foods that I eat, so thank you for giving me my foods. So now I'm going to give you some chemicals that reward you for treating me nicely. Um, <laughs> I, I liked the, I'm sorry, I liked the, um, the connection between me and my microbiome, as if there's no separate, there's no yes. boundary. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a, inner world version of this mm. non-duality, yeah. that, mm -hmm. that it's a symbi symbiotic relationship. That also mm -hmm. sounds somewhat dualistic, but um, anyway, that's the way that science it could currently be, it's one, it. because we can't live without it, Yes, and it can't live without us, yes. so here we all are. Yeah, the, the majority of the cells in our body are actually microbes and not human cells, so <laughs> that always gives me pause. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> John. My thoughts return to the starting with the koan. The um, person who was asked to turn the great canon, and he did a 
physical thing. And sent the message back that he had completed the turning of the Great Academy. And the response um, was, could be viewed as negative. Um, but the response didn't take account of the fact that he had indeed turned the great cabin. He had both circumambulated the altar and he had done his part to continue the never-ending turning of the great cabin. Mm -hmm. The non-dual Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.